I'm uh, Tessa Chow. I have uh, been a, memory, a member of the advisory board of the Above the Parapet programme, uh, which is hosting um, Julia uh, this afternoon. And um, I just wanted to say what a pleasure it is and what an honour it was when Perna asked if I would become a member of the advisory board. And uh, Above the Parapet is a programme about... Uh, that's looking at the experience of women in public life, women who um, achieve positions at a high level. And uh, I think the really interesting thing about the, um, about the programme is that you know, we have a lot of uh, quantitative information about uh, women in public life, um, I always quote that when I first became a member of Parliament in the House of Commons, that there were more men called, uh, there were more MPs called John than there were all the women members of Parliament put together. Uh, things have changed a little bit, but too slowly and not enough. Um, so I felt that this was a really important and well-timed programme, and I have to tell you, I was not dis uh, at all disappointed. And I'm going to ask. Uh, Perna uh, Sen, Perna Sen, who has led the programme, who's um, a very good friend of mine, but a woman of great distinction, who's really been a lifelong campaigner and chronicler of uh, the progress of women. And above the parapet, um, very much arose from her passion and has been very much inspired by her and the women that you've um, been able to interview. So, um, Perna, I'd like you to say um, a little bit more about the programme before we move swiftly on to um, Julia. Um, but also just to say that the hashtag for tonight, for those of you who are tweeting away already, <laughs> is um, hashtag LSE Gillard. Perna. Thank you, Tessa, and thank you, Julie, for joining us tonight, and we'll hear more from you in just a moment. So I won't delay you very long. I know you want to hear from, from her, but just a quick word about, about the project. It's been a, a fantastic project so far. What we've been able to do is talk to women in senior positions in four areas of public life, in politics, in diplomacy, in the academic world, and in civil society, to try and capture their experiences of reaching those senior positions. Because as Tessa said... We know the numbers. We know the numbers are poor. They're disappointing. They are changing, as you say, but they're changing far too slowly. But what we still have to understand is how the women who get there did so. Where they found support, where they didn't, how they dealt with the resistance and challenges, what tools they were able to use, what sort of networks were helpful for them. And think also about what they felt they were able to achieve once they made those positions of seniority. So we have, actually we aim to do about 40 interviews with women in those positions when we started. Um, but we've had so much interest, we're actually going to be having 80 completed interviews by the time we stop next week. Um, we were also able to raise money to have a series, a programme of visiting fellows. And Julia is in that part of the programme where we've had... Uh, Joyce Banda, first president of Malawi, woman president of Malawi. We've had President Rosa Ottenbaeva from Kyrgyzstan. We've had Professor Sylvia Tamale, the first uh, woman dean of the law faculty at Makerere University in Uganda. We now have 
Julia Gillard with us, the first woman to head government in Australia. And on Thursday, our last visiting fellow arrives, and that's Professor Ruth Simmons, who was the first woman and the first black person to head an Ivy League university in the States. And if I may, I'll just flag now that next Tuesday she will be giving a public lecture about her experience, which I hope some of you will be able to join us for. We've had this fantastically rich now database of women's experiences and stories and accounts, and we will be, we are now totally immersed in analysis of all that material. And we will hope to be sharing uh, with you and everybody else who's interested, hopefully, more information about our findings. Uh, if you look at our website, which you can find through the LSE website, you'll see where we're up to, you'll see a little bit about the women we're interviewing, and you will be able to follow the progress as we uh, move towards conclusion and dissemination. One of the things that would be really helpful to hear from you, we're not asking any more for suggestions of women to interview because we've got a fascinating rich pool there, but we are interested now in focusing on dissemination. Who do you think we should be sharing our findings with? We already have in mind to talk to political parties, to diplomatic training academies, to university um, management uh, structures and civil society organisations. But if you have specific suggestions, we'd be really glad to hear them because the point of this is not just to hear but to put those experiences and that you're generously sharing with us, Julia, uh, to put them to good use for women who will follow and for men who want to make a change in public life as we go forward. I have also, of course, to thank our funders, which are the LSE Annual Fund and the Alison Weatherfield Foundation, who have made this amazing project possible. I won't keep you any more. Members of the team are here. If you'd like to know more about the project later, you can wave your hands, perhaps, Jaden Daria. <laughs> <laughs> but there's lots more to tell if you're interested. Thank you, Tessa. Lovely. Perna, thank you very much. And we'll hear more from Perna um, once uh, we've heard uh, from Julia. Just to say, we've got plenty of time between now and 8 o'clock, and we want to allow as much time as possible uh, for all of you to ask Julia your questions, um, particularly members of the public who've um, taken the time to come and um, LSE students. So we look forward very much to uh, your questions. But before we do anything else, Julia, um, I think as the... The star of the evening. Um, we're just all so looking forward to hear what you have to say as the first woman ever Prime Minister of Australia. Thank you very Thank much. You. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you to Tessa and to Perna. A big hello to everybody in the audience and to all the Australians here. A big good day. Uh, uh, it's great to be here with you. Uh, I have had the absolute easy bit to do here. Uh, Perna has described to you the nature of the research that is going on. Uh, from my end, what's it been? Well, it's basically been getting interviewed by Perna, who asks very good questions, and then just talking about my experience. Experiences. So let me acknowledge uh, who's putting in all of the intellectual labour and hard work. It's definitely not me, it's Perna. Uh, so I've spent yesterday and today with Perna and her team uh, talking about my life, my experiences as the first woman to lead the Australian nation. And that's led me to reflect on a number of things that have made a difference for me in my life and a number of lessons that I'd like to share with you this evening. 
and then I'm hoping to get into a great conversation. But many of these reflections and reminiscences have certainly been uh, sparked by Perna's very good questions. Uh, for me, uh, the story starts actually here in the United Kingdom. I was born in Wales and was a migrant to Australia in 1966. I was four years old, so you don't have to stress your maths. That means that I'm turning 54 this year. Um, and the, the first thing about uh, gender, about opportunity in my world was really uh, the environment in my family home. My father, my mother, my sister and I, there were only girls in our family. And from those earliest days in my family home, we were always taught that we were the equal of men, uh, that we should aim big, that we should aspire uh, to a future career, that we should study hard and we should go to university, we should set our sights on that kind of future for ourselves. It's a future that neither of my parents had enjoyed. Both of them, for different reasons, had left school at a very young age. Now, all of that might seem self-evident standing here today, that a mother and a father would impart that degree of ambition uh, to their young daughters, but there was nothing self-evident about that in the 1960s and 1970s in many families the lessons taught to girls in their family home uh, at their earliest age would not have been about ambition. It would have been about uh, their lives centering entirely around being a wife and a mother in the future. So the first lesson I've taken out of my own life experience is how important it is for all of us to encourage children, girls and boys, to aim high, to aim high and to aim without any gender difference. It's one thing to be taught that you should look for opportunities for yourself in life, that you should aim high. It's another thing to go out into the outside world and find those opportunities. And for me, the place that started a lifetime of opportunity was the local government school at the end of the road that I did my education in. I'm of that generation that schooling was zoned, that you actually had to go to the local uh, government school in your zone. I went to the local infant school, primary school and then to the local high school. And fortunately for me, they were great quality schools great quality schools. I get the opportunity now to return to my high school. Sometimes when I do disturbingly, someone gets in the back of the archives and pulls out one of my old report cards, uh, which is never a particularly pleasant experience. Uh, but they were great quality schools. And I've been conscious across my life, what if these lessons in my family home about ambition had not been met by the opportunity to have a great education. What if my parents, as, as migrants, had selected a different suburb in Adelaide to live in, not knowing particularly much about the geography of this new city? What if the suburb they'd selected had been a suburb that didn't have great quality schools in it? What would that have meant for the rest of my life? And so the second lesson I've taken with me during my life and I think is uh, meaningful as we talk about gender and opportunity is not only do we have to teach girls to aim high, we've got to make sure that for all children, boys and girls in our own nations and around the world, that they can find that foundation stone of a great education. And it was that that drove me so much when I was Prime Minister and continues to drive 
drive me still in my life beyond being Prime Minister. And then the third lesson of my life was that if you raised your voice against something you perceived to be an injustice, people listened and you could make a difference. Uh, I've been reminiscing about the first time I ever raised my voice. It was in primary school where, through child eyes, I perceived an injustice. And this grand injustice, in my view, was that at the end of art class, it was the girls who were asked to tidy up all of the, <laughs> all of the paint and all of the plasticine and all of the thrown-around glitter in a primary school art class, uh, and the boys were simply to go to recess. So I raised this burning injustice with my mother, uh, who said that I should speak to the teacher about it. And I did speak to the teacher about it, you know, found a bit of bravery, a bit of courage as a primary school student. And really, you think the harried lives that teachers live, uh, you wouldn't have been surprised if the answer from the teacher was, you know, go back to work, not listening to it, who cares, get on with it. Fortunately, uh, the response from the teacher was, that's right, we should all be doing the tidying up, and thereafter, all of the students in the class had to tidy up the art room. I don't have a precise recollection of how popular or unpopular this made me uh, with, with the boys in the class. I, I suspect perhaps I was uh, saved that because my art teacher didn't point to me as the cause of these new arrangements. The next time I raised my voice was in university when, uh, having got the great privilege of going to university, there were some government cutbacks which I thought jeopardised both quality and access in the future for students. And so I got involved involved in the student movement, raised my voice, went to uh, protests, uh, actually spoke at a protest. Uh, as I said to Perna when I was being interviewed, this was not a rally, uh, you know, of overturned cars on fire and, uh, you know, violent engagements. My mum and dad came uh, to, uh, to, to hear me speak at this rally. It was uh, that kind of, you know, issue-raising protest. Uh, but the then Conservative government, uh, not only because of the protests, but obviously the reaction of universities and academics around the country, uh, did back down on some of the changes. So the third uh, early lesson in my life was you could make a difference. And I do wonder if my early experiences had actually just run into a brick wall of resistance, whether I might have walked away disillusioned, deciding it didn't matter if you raised your voice, you couldn't make a difference. Uh, one of the things I think we've got to make sure is that in our uh, great democracies, as contested and quarrelsome as they can be, that we do enable citizens to get involved and particularly young people to get involved and to learn that in our societies they can make a difference. And then uh, moving beyond uh, the days in university and into the life in politics, the fourth great lesson for me of my lifetime has been that if you are going to do something that's going to be big and difficult, you need to know why you're doing it. You need to have a sense of purpose, a clear mission. I went into politics not because I craved the celebrity. I did not. Uh, not because I thought it would be full of applause. I understood enough about politics to know that inevitably when you make big decisions you get supporters and you get people who are very opposed to what you're doing. I went into politics because I had this driving sense of purpose around education and opportunity. I understood that my life story was different from my parents' life story 
not because of an inherent difference in intelligence, but because of a difference in opportunity. And I wanted that opportunity to be shared by everybody in my nation, by the children from the poorest postcodes, as well as the children from the wealthiest postcodes. And one lesson I'd certainly want to share with you is wherever your life's journey takes you, I think it is very important to have that sense of purpose that can sustain you through. And, final lesson, a sense of self that can sustain you through as well. The period of my Prime Ministership uh, included uh, the inevitability of heat and fire and contest in politics. That's the way we do our politics. It's the way you do your politics. And in democracies, it is always going to be like that. And it should be like that, because big things, big values, big ideas are being fought over. But it also had a dose of gendered commentary and gendered insults, whether they be placards at a protest of ditch the witch, uh, whether it be some of the hard-hitting things that were said about me uh, by conservative commentators. Uh, for example, one of our radio shock jocks, Alan Jones, uh, suggested that I should be put in a chaff bag and thrown out to sea to drown. This did lead me at one of our annual press gallery balls, where as Prime Minister you are required, whether or not you want to, to give an amusing speech for the press gallery after yet another long and bruising year. I did uh, joke with our press gallery, I just don't understand these sexist conservatives. Ditch the witch, then they want to drown me. Everybody knows you can't drown a witch. They've got to get the story straight. Uh, uh, so uh, humour was one of the ways of deflecting these sorts of sexist jibes, but really uh, the stronger way of uh, reflect, uh, deflecting them was to have a sense of self that wasn't hostage to what was happening in the media cycle. I needed to have the kind of insulation in my own mind uh, that would make sure I didn't think I was an ultra-good person on the day that the newspaper headlines were all running yeah. very well for me and a dreadful person on the day that they were running badly for me. On both of those days, I needed to understand that I was the same person, the same mix of strengths and weaknesses, uh, and couldn't have my sense of self hostage to that roller coaster. Now, in today's age, you don't need to be in the very publicly exposed profession of politics to actually see very dreadful things said about yourself. The youngest of teenage girls would look at Twitter and other social media platforms and potentially see horrible things said about them. And so I think a lifetime lesson, and particularly a lifetime lesson for women, is to have that sense of self that can carry you through. These are some of the reflections, some of the things that have come into my mind as I've talked through my life experience with Perna. Inevitably, uh, whilst I believe in politics, I achieved uh, a range of reforms for my nation in a whole lot of policy areas that make a long-term difference. Inevitably, one of the things I will be remembered for is being the first woman. And that does mean that it gives me a window and an opportunity to talk about gender and women and leadership. This is what Perna is focused on in this uh, study, and I genuinely think it's one of the issues of our times one of the great issues of our times, how we equalise opportunities for leadership and perceptions of leadership between men and women. So I want to conclude with just some observations about how we will know that we've 
reached a time when there is no difference between the way in which we perceive men and women leaders, when we are truly judging men and women leaders on their capabilities and competence, on what they are doing and achieving, and nothing more. Uh, first, I think we'll know we've reached that time when we don't have endless fascination with what women politicians are wearing. A burden, <laughs> a burden we most assuredly do not put on men in politics. In fact, there are really, in Australian politics, only three outfits a man ever needs to have. Uh, a suit, a shirt and a tie. Hard to get wrong. A black tie to go to a formal event and no one ever says, geez, given that tuxedo of flogging, you can wear the same tuxedo uh, year, year after year after year. And then there is the regulation Prime Minister goes bush outfit, uh, which uh, cons consists of the chinos, the blazer and the open neck shirt. Um, we, we have never, uh, never achieved uh, this ability to put appearance to one side for women. We know that we've got true equality for women and leadership when we have done that. We'll know we've got true equality for women and leadership when there aren't a set of remarks around women and family structures. Uh, for me, those remarks were about uh, being deliberately barren, uh, the suggestion that I could not know anything about family life because I did not have children. Then, of course, if you do have children, well, hell, who's looking after them while you run round uh, in this world of politics? Uh, so there's apparently no right way to engage in politics unless potentially you are an older woman with perfect adult children uh, who have led unblemished and uncontroversial lives. Uh, but uh, beyond that uh, exalted status, there's no way of winning this argument about being a woman in politics and family structures. Uh, we'll know that we've achieved true equality when women's family structures, whether or not they've chosen to have children, is not commented upon. We'll know that we've achieved true equality when the gendered insult isn't clutched for during controversial political debates, that those debates might be had with heat and with passion, but that the gendered insult is not part of those political debates. We'll know when we have got to this status of men and women's leadership truly being weighed equally, when there isn't the whisper in the back of our brains that says to us, men and leadership, well, a male leader can be very likeable indeed. Leadership and men and likeability tend to be correlated in our minds, whereas women and leadership and likeability are most certainly not. Uh, the assumption, uh, I think the sexist assumption that still whispers to us all, the cultural stereotype, is that if we see a woman in a leadership position, a woman who is uh, issuing instructions and commands, who has authority, it's pretty easy to conclude somewhere in the back of your mind that she must have given up on those female traits of empathy and nurturing. She must be pretty hard-boiled. She must be pretty ruthless. She must be a bit of, and I'll let you supply the next word, that, that lies in that very commonly used sentence. And if we allow those stereotypes to whisper to us that women leaders are not very likeable, then we will always weigh male and female leadership differently. And then finally, we will know that we've got to a time when male and female leadership is being equally valued, when we so routinely see women lead nations, 
women lead big companies, women lead in all sorts of avenues of life. We so routinely see those women lead uh, that no one bothers to keep the statistics anymore. Uh, one of the things my political party still does uh, to raise money is have quiz nights. Yes, I know it's old-fashioned and we have some more modern ways of fundraising than that, uh, but I'm hoping to live a long life and I'm hoping to go to an ALP quiz night towards the end of my long life where one of the questions is how many women Prime Ministers have there been in Australia and no-one knows the answer <laughs> because no-one bothers to keep count anymore. Thank Thank you very much. Julia, thank you very much indeed. My goodness me, wasn't that inspiring? Um, I just want to know who, uh, can we see the Australian contingent here? Can you put your, oh my goodness me. All right, well, keep your hands on, let me take a photo. Yeah, okay, Pana's going to take a, this is, this is a kind of inverse selfie, isn't it? All right, let's have your hands up. I think I, th I think we need some positive discrimination in favour of, of Australian questioners. Well okay, done. I've got it. Great. But uh, as the director of the Above the Parapet program, it's um, for Perna to ask the first question, and then we'll um, we'll open it up. Okay. Perna. Thank you very much, and thank you, Julia. What an amazing way to kick us off thank tonight, you. and thank you so much for making time for the project. It's really appreciated. You've talked about yourself as a really strong, uh, motivated person with a strong sense of self. You talked about that tonight and how necessary that was uh, to do what you've done and is very driven. First woman to head the Labour Party in Australia, the first woman Prime Minister. What was it or what is it about the world of politics that stimulates and challenges and pleases you? And what was added to that by becoming Prime Minister? Uh, that's, that's a great question and uh, inevitably in discussions like this we focus on some of the downsides associated with gender and politics and so we should because we've still got to research them, we've got to think about them, we've got to understand them. Uh, but it's always important from my point of view to focus on the great upsides that mm. come with being involved in politics. Um, you know, amongst the various experiences I had in my life, I was a lawyer for a period of time uh, doing employment law. And you would see people who came in, things had happened to them at work, and for some you could take a legal case and you could get them compensation or whatever and make a difference. But there were lots of people who came in uh, with uh, very bad tales of things that had happened to them and you couldn't do anything for them because the law wasn't in the right shape. Yep. Uh, that question of opportunity, of having great schools, of making sure people could find a pathway through in life, uh, that opportunity, I know from my own life, is impacted by government. It yep. was impacted by government for me. So the great delight in politics is you get to identify something that is wrong with your nation and make a difference resolve it. Uh, maybe not wholly resolve it, but at least, you know, take a step forward. And the journey of politics is always going to be some steps forward, some steps back. Um, that is, you know, it's never going to be just a straight arrow ahead. Uh, but I found my greatest delights in politics were delivering the policies and plans you knew that not just the next year, but for 5, 10, 15 years later would be making a real mm -hmm. difference. Mm -hmm. And as Prime Minister, um, you know, sort of first amongst equals, Prime Minister, uh, you do have a 
stronger say, a louder voice in the debates and discussions that shape the policies in your nation yeah. and more authority and ability to drive that change than any other minister sitting around the table. Not untrammeled authority because a good government always has to work as a collective and share views but a great deal of authority. So uh, for me that meant that I could do more of what I believed in. Do more of it. Mm. Do more Fantastic. of it. Good. Shall we um, go to the audience? And uh, who'd like to ask the first question? And can I ask you just to say who you are and perhaps where you're from, whether you're a student here or whether you've come out of interest and whether you're Australian or not? <laughs> <laughs> I've got some Twitter questions to add in as well. Well, thank you very much, Prime Minister Gillard. Um, I am from Pakistan. I'm a postgrad student doing law and accounting here. And um, I'd like to... I'm not sure how did you manage the boys' club. Even at LSE, while working in groups, I started noticing. I just used to think that in Pakistan, it's it's a boys' world and a, and a women's world if there is any women's world at all other than the household. But even in professional domains, I could see polarity. And I saw that the objective was being lost. Uh, in the world of politics, there is a particular goal and objective. And how, as a leader, were you able to, despite being a female, stop that segregation happening and focus the energy towards the accomplishment irrespective of the gender. Thank you. Okay. okay. That, thank you. That's a great question. Thank you. And I, I would firstly say that in um, so much of what happens in politics and happened in my world, uh, that it's not about uh, just the reaction or work of an individual woman. Uh, it's, it's about the sort of broad group. And so when I think, for example, of uh, the cabinet that I chaired um, in the government that I led, uh, we had a number of women sit around that cabinet table. And the more women there are involved in, um, you know, being in a parliament, mm. then in a ministry, then at, you know, more and more senior levels, uh, the more that is uh, normalised, women are there, then I think you do get a change in the dynamic that, uh, you know, I can't imagine what it was like for uh, Susan Ryan, a, a Labor woman who sat as the only woman uh, in the first cabinet of the Hawke uh, Labor government, what that experience must have been like. Uh, but for us, you know, for the Labor Party now to have a number of women sitting around the cabinet or the shadow cabinet table and hopefully more and more and more, uh, that, is, that is the sort of normal way we work. And I think that that changes things. Um, I am conscious of all of the research that says, you know, if you uh, watch a group talk through a problem uh, and then you interview people afterwards and say how, mu how much time did the women uh, take, Pe men particularly will grossly overestimate the amount of time that the women have spoken for and when you actually add it up in minutes it's often that the women have spoken less. Um, I think we've just got to be conscious of those things, both men and women. Uh, and be doing you know, positive things to try and change them. Uh, one of the things that I would do, uh, not 
in government, in cabinet, but earlier on in uh, the student movement when there were still you know, some of these differences, is if you'd get to a stage where a number of men had spoken, you'd deliberately advance a woman up the speaking list to make sure that, you know, just a simple mechanical thing, uh, make sure that you were getting a conversation that included the whole group. So there's not just one way of doing it, but it's a real issue to be conscious of. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. Um, we've got some uh, Twitter questions, Julia. So let's just uh, let's just try um, uh, one of those. Let's uh, the Women's Equality Party um, is due to be launched in uh, September. So what do you think of a party at uh, the emergence of a party dedicated to women's equality? <coughs> Uh, for, for me, uh, you know, the only political party I'd ever be a member of or support is the Labor Party. And I think, uh, I think at the end of the day, uh, equalising uh, opportunities uh, across our societies, uh, making sure that there is uh, social mobility, shared opportunities, good government services, uh, that that is the work of a progressive political party like a Labor Party. And that whilst I you know, profoundly believe uh, in the cause of gender equality, for me, mm. it doesn't make sense to separate it off uh, and try and pursue yeah. it uh, as a standalone rather than as an integrated suite of policies that are about inclusion sure. and opportunity. I think that's very good. That's a, a recurrent theme in, um, in politics here as well. Now, there's a young woman right at the back um, up there. Will you shout out your question and tell us who you are? Thank you. My name is Esther Dorovaj and I'm a Sydney girl, uh -huh. but I left in 1995, so it's been a while. Thank you very much for being here. I'm also an LSE alumni and I work at the BBC and I'm part of a network called Global Women in News. The first thing that I want to say is I never experienced any kind of gender or sexual discrimination being born and raised in Australia because in the environments I was brought up in there was always a sense of resilience and fairness and I never experienced sexism or anything like that until I left Australia which I think is very interesting um, the second thing is I run a project which we have a look at how women are represented because I mean, if you're in media you have to pay attention to your audience and we notice a massive skew that there's always for example more men online than women so we deliberately pick pictures where there's lots of women and we see the audience shift because of that so and I also find myself that just because I'm female I have to also speak up for the feminists and represent even if that's something that I don't want to do so my question to you is we do need to engage the other gender, which is men. So if there were three key pieces of practical advice that you could give, not just to the men in this room, but to anybody who is involved in any kind of education or leadership, whether it's schools or business, media or whatever else, what would those three practical things be? Very good. That's a great question, Julia. Uh, I think... <laughs> Uh, given the week and a bit I've had in London, uh, first practical piece of advice would be you will run into the BBC everywhere because I'm <laughs> certainly uh, I, I know that there's a big agenda about government cutbacks at the BBC, but you certainly managed to spread yourself around. So, uh, congratulations to you for that, uh, uh, that, that coverage. Um, uh, I'd look. I'd uh, say. I mean, on this question, I mean, the, centrally on the issue of gender equality, um, I would say to uh, men and women uh, that 
this is this is a cause for change in our societies and around the world. And we've got to remember, even as we are having this conversation, there are women around the world who deal with uh, sexual violence, sexism, subjugation in societies where uh, the gender issues are so much more profound than the ones we face in our societies, uh, that this cause of gender equality around the world uh, is something that is uh, good for men and good for women. Absolutely. Uh, it means we will have uh, the most meritorious people at the leadership of our nations, the leadership of our companies. Uh, it will enable everybody to have more options and choices rather than being put in pigeonholes that they can feel uncomfortable in. Uh, so practical pieces of advice. Uh, I'd say to men in the audience and more broadly, uh, this question of change is on your shoulders, not mm. just on women's shoulders. Uh, if you see something happen that's gendered or unfair, often it can be easier for the man to raise it than the woman to raise it. And I do reflect back on my own experiences in politics and certainly, uh, you know, if uh, during some of the crazier times uh, there had been an authoritative male voice, perhaps a business leader who'd said you know, something like, you know, I don't vote Labor, I don't support Julia Gillard, I don't like her policies, but we don't have our democratic conversations like this, full of gendered insults. I think that would have been profoundly changing mm, to the exactly. debate. So being prepared to raise your voice uh, for men to be champions of change would be one big mm. thing. Uh, then, then for everyone, I think this, you know, sense of purpose and sense of self matters. Uh, we, uh, we get to live in an age, a wonderful age, uh, where we can be very empowered citizens, where we can get the opportunity to have options and choices in our lives. And as we sort and sift that, uh, you know, an audience like this, um, that having that sense of purpose about what matters to you, having a sense of self which builds resilience, I think is very important for both men and women. I think that's. Um, I think everyone will find that um, very helpful indeed, Julia. We need to uh, spread the ownership of this set of obligations and uh, change. Um, Panna, you wanted to come back with another question, please, if I may. Um, Julia, it actually links to what we were talking about in terms of the Women's Equality Party and other parties sharing an equality agenda mm. and integrating that into their work. And you mentioned earlier the abuse that you, you've suffered, you've been the target of. Um, and I think many people here, if not all, will know about the famous misogyny speech. You're welcome to cheer. <laughs> <laughs> but what people may not know about is that you were involved in crafting your party's affirmative action policies and in founding EMILY's List in Australia. Mm. Perhaps you could share a little bit about how that came about and what what uh, impact it may have had so far. Sure. I'm happy to talk about that. Um, I, I stepped into you know, political activity through the student movement, yep. got more and more involved in the Labor Party, uh, lived in Victoria under a Labor government which ended up uh, led by a woman, Joan Kerner. Unfortunately, we recently lost Joan, and uh, that loss is, uh, you know, to be very much grieved. Uh, but there was a, you know, time when I was a sort of young Labor activist that you could look at this government, 
run by a woman, lots of senior women ministers, and you could say to yourself, you know, this gender stuff, it's basically fixed now, like it's on its way to fixing itself. There's lots of women around and, you know, it's all fine. Uh, and then when that government uh, had a very uh, hard defeat, you know, a big defeat, we were pushed right into opposition, lost uh, lots of marginal seats, we're back to our sort of bedrock vote. Uh, when that happened, you looked again at that Labor caucus and there was only one woman. So all of the women had been in the marginal seats and on a bad yeah. turn of the political cycle, they were out of Parliament. And so Joan started a campaign at that point uh, to change the Labor Party rules so there would be a, an affirmative action target so women had to get a fair share of safe seats and to create an organisation called Emily's List which would be uh, pro-choice, pro-equity and would um, su support and fundraise for female candidates, for Labor women candidates. Uh, and I really got to do some of the things that helped Joan achieve that, some of the drafting and lobbying and uh, setting up work. Uh, those things have made a difference in Australian politics. Um, it's meant that Labor has more women in its ranks and it's meant for many Labor women that there's a support network which offers them you know, money, because being a political candidate costs money, uh, but also mentorship and support. Uh, so I you know, would recommend as these as things for people to think about, no matter what side of politics. I think it would be good if uh, conservative political parties uh, thought these issues through as well. Um, when we did that, um, the big argument against it, the big argument was um, it's a distortion to merit. If you have a rule, if you have a target, um, then it's a distortion to merit. Uh, to which uh, one wanted to do the very simple retort, have you had a look round here lately, like all of these blokes got here on merit, did they? Um, but uh, the... The more uh, sort of profound response, I hope, uh, is, you know, if, if you believe merit is equally distributed between the sexes, and I do, and you look at any organisation, a Labor caucus, and it is heavily skewed one way, yeah. then that means that women of merit, who should have been there, haven't mm. got there. And why would you, in the hard, hard world of politics, not want to field your best team? you know, the best people yeah. uh, to be in your parliament, the best people to be in your cabinet, and then in other worlds, the best people to be the leadership of corporate boards on judicial benches, leading civil society organisations, and the list goes on. Uh, and we won through on that argument. I think on the conservative side of politics, that argument is still relied on and falsely put mm. uh, to prevent there being a wave of change, and we do need to see that wave of change. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Um, yes, I'm in the front. Tell us who you are. Um, my name's Christina. I interview inspirational women. I'm a great admirer of um, Julia because of A, she's an Australian, B, she's a feminist, and C, she's an educator. And uh, so much of what you said resonates with the kind of things that I'm doing. But I want to take you back to your primary school experience. And you said, I raised my voice. And that just resonates so much with me because... You believed in yourself, and you were listened to, and it was at primary. So much of what I find myself involved here at the RSA and other things is focusing on secondary. It's a bit late. Could you say something about the importance of primary education? Uh, I think uh, it's you know, nev never, uh, never too early uh, to learn to learn how to, uh, not 
uh, raise your voice in the sense of uh, wild misbehaviour. Uh, I, I certainly uh, come from the, uh, the generation that had pretty strict teachers. I mean, uh, you half loved them and half feared them, uh, and in many ways it was a pretty good mix, the love and the fear. Uh, they inspired, but you certainly behaved. Um, uh, I, you know, but I think even in that environment, um, it's uh, good to say to children that if there's something wrong, that they should uh, be able to talk about it and to be taken seriously if they do talk about it. Uh, now, how you systematically build that into a curriculum or teaching practice, uh, people who are wiser than me on uh, schools and uh, how they should be run can probably puzzle their way through that. But, uh, you know, I would hope that that's a capability we are trying to give all of our daughters and, and sons um, and a capability that then follows them into secondary school and across their lives. Mm. Thank you. Should we go to another Twitter question, and then we'll come back to you? Um, Julia, uh, Mark Dodd um, asks, what's the best piece of political advice you ever received? Uh, well, I'd say one of the best pieces I ever received, um, actually from a Brit, so it seems very Good. appropriate to uh, refer to it here, uh, a man called Alan Milburn, uh, who... Uh, oh, Okay, well known in this yeah, audience. Yeah, we all know. Um, yes. uh, he uh, came and assisted as a campaign strategist on our 2007 campaign, uh, the campaign where uh, Kevin Rudd as Labor leader uh, led Labor out of opposition uh, into government at the end of a long-term Conservative government. Uh, so I first met Alan then. Uh, I think he subsequently authored a book which may have been entitled something like How I Won the Australian Election. <laughs> Uh, so th th there may be some contested accounts about who was responsible for what. But um, uh, he, he then uh, came back to assist me during a very difficult campaign, the 2010 election campaign. Uh, but even before he came back to assist me in that campaign, when I'd first become Prime Minister, uh, he'd given me some advice and said, you know, you should... Uh, write down your sense of purpose, what it is that you want to achieve as Prime Minister. You should carry it with you. Uh, you know, on the worst of days, you should get it back out. You should reread it. It will be steadying for you. It will be galvanising for the people around you. Everybody will know what your mm. purpose is. And so even uh, though, you know, I became Prime Minister and, and there's just so much work to do and we were quickly going to go to an election campaign, uh, I did spend time writing out that sense of purpose and it was very important for me. Uh, and I did keep it with me and during some of the darkest days in government I did get it back mm. out and read it again. Uh, I reported to Alan that I had um, done as he advised uh, in a somewhat astonished uh, way. He said, you know, I've given that advice to a lot of political leaders and you're the only one who's ever done it. <laughs> uh, so uh, chalk that up as one success for Alan Milburn and, and I think a very good piece of advice. Well, I, I agree with you. I, th I think, all the, I mean, Alan is a good friend of mine. We served in Cabinet together. And I think that the point about that advice, which may not be wholly original, um, <laughs> but the point about it is that it gives you a very strong sense of your strategic purpose as opposed to rather more short-term tactical 
um, response. You know, the first being good politics, the second being, you know, much, um, much weaker, less convincing um, politics occasioned mm. by circumstances. You, of course, you need to be tactical at times, but it, I don't think it works unless it's underpinned by a very clear sense of strategy that expresses your sense of purpose. Um, Pana, would you like to come back next and then, yes, in, in order that we have uh, gender fairness, you're next. <laughs> um, yes, Julia, you're, you reached the highest political office in your country and you suffered for it as well as being able to have a position of authority which you spoke about earlier. Um, you said uh, on leaving office that you knew now it would be easier for the women who followed you. In most countries, minority women fare less well than majority women. In Australia, the first Indigenous woman to be elected to federal parliament didn't get there till 2013. Nova Paris. And she had your support, I know that. Um, what's the legacy you feel you'll leave for Indigenous women who are, have a sense of self, who are brave, who are courageous, and who are politically motivated in Australia? Yes. Uh, First, first and foremost, for uh, Indigenous Australians, uh, there's still a big uh, agenda for change about making sure that people um, have got the supports and services and opportunities, which means that we don't see big gaps in life expectancy, yep. big gaps in educational achievement, big gaps in employment. Uh, when uh, we were in office and Kevin as Prime Minister led this process, uh, he created an agenda known as Close the Gap. So he delivered a very historic apology uh, to Indigenous Australians yep. for uh, practices in which children were taken away from Indigenous families uh, and then followed it up with this very practical agenda of change to close these gaps, the life expectancy, health, education and employment gaps. And that agenda was worked on uh, night and day by a very talented minister called Jenny Macklin. So all of that practical work needs to happen and continue to happen. Um, and alongside it, there needs to be the, um, you know, inclusion, the, the inclusion of people, you know, the sense that all the doors are open for people to come through, Indigenous men and Indigenous women, uh, and to be involved in representative politics. Uh, Labor internally uh, has tried to make sure that there are some particular structures to uh, bring Indigenous Australians into our internal um, debates and processes. Uh, I wanted to accelerate uh, some of that rate of change. It deeply troubled me that uh, the Federal Labor Party had never had an Indigenous person serve, not across all of Australian yeah. history, uh, serve in the Federal Parliament, and so I supported Nova uh, to be the first woman. Uh, and uh, so the other side of politics had had some Indigenous men serve, but Nova is the first woman. Uh, so I hope that... You know, through Nova being there, through other Indigenous Australians being in Parliament, that ho hopefully we see numbers build mm. over time and that very role modelling um, helps create more of a sense of opportunity that there is a place um, for people in the Federal Parliament. And whilst that's happening, we need, you know, the other structures that allow yeah. the voices of Indigenous Australians to be heard. And we set up uh, something, uh, a congress that enabled Indigenous Australians to come together and give, um, you know, strong advice to government about policy directions for the future. And that's, I think, a very important yeah, way of working. Yeah. 
Thank you, Julia. Yes. Hi there. Shout out your name. I'm Chris, and I'm from Scotland, where Nicola Sturgeon is doing her best to encapsulate women in public life very successfully, I think. I wanted to ask a question about you want to see more female prime ministers in Australia, and Julie Bishop seems set to perhaps be the next one. Would you support her maybe doing a Julia and ousting Tony? Let me say two things. Uh, one, one, since I left politics, uh, I've made it my business to stay out of contemporary political debates Very wise. Uh, and allow the team that's there to uh, get on with representing Labor, and they're doing it very well, uh, without me looming over their shoulders. Uh, so that's my outlook. Uh, so I think I've got sufficient of my jungle skills from politics to avoid answering your question. <laughs> I've uh, retained enough of those abilities. Uh, so I won't speculate about anything to do with uh, the future leadership of the Liberal Party. Uh, but I am uh, very convinced that uh, whenever Australian politics and whichever side of politics um, uh, supplies the, the next woman who contends to be Prime Minister, and I don't think it's anywhere on the near horizon, I think uh, the 2016 election will be a contest between uh, Tony Abbott on the one hand and Bill Shorten on the other. Uh, but whenever that happens in, in the future, I do think that it will be easier. I think there were some things about being the first uh, that people, the nation, uh, needed to work through um, and the sort of amplitude around the gender issues for the second uh, won't, won't be as big. It won't be nothing, but it won't be as big. And the more women there are, the less and less it will be, mm. which is why I hope for that long-term future uh, when we don't even bother to keep the count exactly. anymore. Because it's been normalised. Yes. Exactly. <coughs> OK, yes. Um, woman at the back in the black dress. Hi, I'm Megan Clement. I'm from the conversation and I am Australian. Uh, I, very simple question. Uh, what did your piece of paper say? Ah, you can read it in my book. It's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's, in, it's entirely reproduced, so uh, uh, feel free to study it. But um, it, uh, uh, it, it had in it uh, the uh, things that were most important to me in terms of uh, policy direction. So it certainly spoke about uh, about education, about the importance of work, about dealing with people with respect, uh, about preparing uh, our nation for the future. Um, so uh, it's there for people to have a look at um, in, in the book. And, um, you know, maybe, uh, maybe I should have published it when I was still Prime Minister, but uh, what, what I tried to do instead was to live true to it and deliver policies that were in accordance with it. Good. And uh, just to remind you all that uh, copies of, <laughs> of, well, I act as your agent on this, Julia, that, the, um, that copies of Julia's book are available for sale outside. And then uh, when we finish uh, at eight o'clock, Julia will be on the platform uh, signing the copies of her book that you've bought. But she did say no selfies and no dedications in order that she can get through everybody who wants to have their book signed. Okay, now, next question. Uh, yes, gentleman at the back there. Um, 
Good evening. Uh, this is a, a three-pronged questions. One to Julia Gillard, one to uh, Puna, and also Tessa. Uh, Julia, you mentioned, please excuse me, I have to well, put my glasses on. Please excuse me, be patient. No, I'm, I'm with you on the glasses thing. Right. Uh, you mentioned, uh, perhaps I didn't hear, I misheard you, you mentioned that uh, you're a good Christian. About, good, about the values of being good Christian, under your premiership, when you were when you were uh, when you were destroying, continuing the destruction of uh, Iraq. I am an Iraqi. I'm a Christian Iraqi. Yes, you you partake in, in to that destruction. You 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 talk you talk about uh, equal rights to women. Do, do the Aboriginal uh, women get the same opportunity in Australia? Uh, do do you have uh, uh, any any reason why Tony Abbott says uh, keeps on repeating do the right thing when it comes to Refugees are trying to get to Australia, and he says, uh, uh, talk about the Iraqis or Arabs wishing to harm them. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> wishing to harm the Australians. We, we, are, we, don't share the, we don't share a border, a common border with you, so how can we harm you? You, you speak quite uh, eloquently about other aspects of, of the, uh, uh, the, the life for, for women in Europe. Have you ever been to Cuba? Have you ever been to Venezuela to see how women operate in there? You partake, you, you are prime minister, into the war which Tessa Jowell agreed on and uh, Dr. Pona, have you been to Russia to see how the women are op- operating there? Can I, can I just uh, suggest that Julia focuses very particularly on the part of your question uh, not to avoid the other questions that you asked, but the fact is Julia's made clear she doesn't want to comment on policy which is active in, and potentially controversial in Australia. I think it's fair that she is not asked to do that. Um, but Julia, perhaps you'd just like to say a little bit more about the um, the action you took to promote um, equality for Indigenous women. Sure, sure. Thank you. Um, and and, and uh, thank, thank you for your question. You've obviously raised a, a set, of, set of issues, a set of foreign policy issues. Um, in, I mean, just in terms of uh, Labor's uh, heritage and decision-making uh, in, in relation to uh, the Iraq war, a different decision was taken here in the UK, uh, but in relation to the Iraq war, Australian Labor opposed uh, that war and opposed being involved in it. Uh, on uh, questions of equal opportunity for women... Uh, Of course, I believe that there should be equal opportunity for women around the world, uh, including all women in Australia, including Indigenous women. Uh, And part of what we talked about before with the uh, settings that the government had of closing the gap was to focus on the drivers of Indigenous disadvantage, what was keeping Indigenous Australians from having uh, fair access to housing, to jobs, to employment, to health care, which was condemning the children of Indigenous Australians to shorter life expectancies and to change all of those things so that uh, there would truly be uh, equal opportunity uh, and equal treatment for Indigenous Australians. Now, much 
has changed and much remains to be done. Uh, but I am confident from a number of things that the government did when I was in government and also the government led by Kevin Rudd, I am confident that the direction of travel is a good one, that we are making a difference uh, to Indigenous disadvantage, just as we must make a difference to inequality around the world. Uh, and one of the things I fo focus on now in my post-political life uh, is I chair the Global Partnership for Education, which is the multilateral funder uh, dedicated uh, to supporting schooling in the poorest places in the world uh, so that children who currently never see the inside of a classroom uh, get to go to school and get a great quality education and have the opportunity that then flows from that. Thank you, Julia, very much. Yes, gentlemen here. Thank you. Hi, uh, thank you. Uh, my name is Xiao Wang. I come from China, but I studied in Australian National University for Economics and International Relations last year. And uh, my question is quite simple. Uh, the first one is, when did you decide on being a politician? And the second question is, in order, in order to be a prime minister, what effect have you done? What sort of effects have you had? What, oh, okay. what, yeah, I mean, what is your legacy okay. as Prime Minister? Thank you. Um, I, I didn't uh, decide on uh, a career in politics or aiming to be a parliamentarian or anything like that uh, until I had been involved in student politics and got the sense uh, that you could be involved in political debates, policy debates and make a difference. Uh, when I was Deputy Prime Minister and Education Minister and when I was Prime Minister, uh, I'd go and visit schools and I'd talk to kids about what they wanted to do when they grew up and there would always be you know, the five-year-old, the six-year-old, the seven-year-old who would say with complete confidence, I want to be Prime Minister when I grow up. Uh, I was never that kid. I was never that kid. Uh, you know, I, from, from my family background, uh, it, it would it just inconceivable that you, know, you could end up in politics. I mean, there's nothing in my family background that gave you the sense that that was a door open to you. You know, I would have thought there was some kind of, you know, superhuman beings somewhere and they were the sort of people that ended up in parliaments, not people like my family. Uh, but over, you know, uh, growing up, going to uni, getting involved in student politics, um, you know, doing things, going to Canberra, lobbying ministers, engaging with the min media, uh, coming up with policies for change, I increasingly got the sense I could do this and that mm. it was the best way of making a difference. So it took me quite some time to work out uh, that I wanted to be a parliamentarian. <coughs> Uh, having had the experience of being in Parliament, being Prime Minister, uh, the big things I'd, I'd point to, uh, we delivered uh, what I think will stand the test of time as a uh, direction for the future for Australia in this century. We called it Australia in the Asian century to capture uh, the strategic changes in our region and what that means for our nation. Uh, we delivered uh, major education reforms that will endure, uh, a new way of supporting Australians with disabilities and giving them opportunity. 
I delivered an apology for people who'd been the subject of forced adoptions. I started a royal commission to inquire into... <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I started a royal commission to uh, inquire into how we can keep our children safer, what we can do to address child abuse in institutional settings, uh, because so much had come to light about abuse of children in the past. Uh, we put a price on carbon. Yes, it's been repealed, but I'm confident it will be back. Uh, and we uh, made some big foreign policy changes, including uh, a new uh, set of arrangements with China, which will make a long-term difference for Australia and for China. Uh, so, you know, these are all things that I've got the opportunity to do, and I'm proud of being able to have done them and delivered them for the Australian people. Good. Thank you. Uh, yes, your question. Francis, can you just hold on a sec till you get a microphone? Thank you. Hi, I'm Francis. I studied at the LSE about two years ago. Um, I've got a question around the balance of female role models and policy change. So to what extent do you think that female leaders who have implemented anti-progressive policies have advanced the course of women just by being in public life? Uh, I, I think it's uh, important that there that there's equality and that there are uh, women doing you know all of the jobs in public life, even if we disagree with their policies. Uh, so you know I, I'm I'm was born here, but I didn't live here during the era of Margaret Thatcher. Uh, if I had, uh, I would have hoped uh, that I had the uh, wherewithal to say that it was a good thing uh, that a woman could rise to the top of her nation, but that her policies were wrong. Uh, just, as, <laughs> just, just as I would have said uh, for a number of uh, Conservative Prime Ministers in this nation that um, I didn't hold anything against them personally, but I didn't agree with their policies. Uh, so, you know, I think we're only going to see uh, true equality when it is, um, you know, possible uh, that women come through on all sides of the political contest, not just one side. Uh, we don't hold uh, one particular area of political ground for men uh, and then say that the other areas somehow aren't for men. We expect there to be men who are Conservatives, men who are Greens, men who are Labor supporters, men who are various sorts of independents, uh, men representing far-right political parties. Um, you know, I think equality for women means that they'll participate with all sorts of political views. Uh, that doesn't mean that I, as a Labor supporter, wouldn't continue to campaign uh, for the things that I believe in and the values that I hold dear. Julia, we've got another. Um, the questions are coming in on Twitter. Are you in favour of quotas on corporate boards? When we were in government, uh, what, what we did was we tried to create an expectation about change in corporate Australia. For government, uh, we said that 40% of the positions that government um, appoints, and governments obviously appoint uh, all sorts of uh, boards and agencies and regulatory bodies, uh, that 40% of those positions would go to women and we achieve mm -hmm. that. And we hope through that demonstration effect and, and by advocating to corporate Australia change that we would drive an organic um, change within corporate Australia that it wouldn't require outside regulation. 
my view remains that it would be best if the business community self-responded, uh, but if it doesn't, um, uh, you know, and I think on this the jury might still be a little bit out, but if it's clear that there isn't a response, then there will come a time when the best way of resolving it is for government to regulate. Thank you. Yes. Hi, I'm Alex. I stood as a parliamentary candidate aged 26 for the Labour Party in the election just gone. Often I would go to events and I felt like I was the only woman in the room and especially the only young woman. How, what advice, I, I mean I now try and make sure that we have more young people involved in politics locally. What advice or encouragement would you give to try and get more young people involved, especially young women, given it can be such a vicious and unpleasant world to be part of? Yeah, Alex, incidentally, fought a great campaign. And it's a very, very good question about getting young people involved. Well, congratulations to you for having uh, fought that campaign and to have done so at 26. Um, a, a great experience and I'm sure uh, at this close stage from election day there's still a bit of bruising and scar tissue but I think I'm able to say to you with some authority that it goes away over time so um, I, I, I hope you find that. Um, uh, I think uh, for one of the things I was really conscious of um, when I left politics and one of the reasons I wrote the book quite quickly, um, even though that meant there were uh, days when I was writing 12 hours a day and you know wandering around my house probably looking quite dishevelled and talking to myself, causing my partner Tim to be moderately concerned about my state. Uh, by, the, by the time your Mac Air book is your best friend, you may have gone too far with this writing thing. Uh, but the, the reason I wanted to um, write it quickly... Uh, is I was increasingly concerned that in the media there were, you know, polling and, you know, blogging or posting or whatever, and the feedback that was coming in from young women was that they'd looked at my experience as mm. Prime Minister and gone, no, nope, oh, not mm. for me. Yeah. Uh, and I wanted the book to come out and to stand squarely for the proposition that whilst, yes, there was this stuff, um, that the you know, opportunities, the delights, the things that come with being involved in the leadership of your nation, in your nation's parliament, uh, that that overwhelms all this stuff absolutely. So it's a positive thing and that young women should go for it. Uh, so first and foremost, I think even as we have events like this and, and Perna does her research and we talk our way through questions of gender, we, we can't let all the spotlight go here, otherwise people mm. will conclude it's all downside. Mm. We've got to keep some of the spotlight here uh, so people can see the upside. So I think, you know, how we talk about politics matters. Um, how we talk about politics um, also matters to convince young people that it's worth it, that you can make exactly. change. And I think there's a lot of, you know, fashionable cynicism around about politics, that it doesn't make any difference. Um, you know, in Australia, voting is compulsory. You have to go and vote. Uh, as, a, as a member of parliament, you know, I'd go and you'd go around your polling booths on election day and people would be waiting 10, 15 minutes in a line to go and vote and they'd all be complaining. And in an, an election, a vote-losing manoeuvre, I'd be saying to people... Don't you realise around the world people fight and die for the right to vote and you can't be bothered standing there for ten bloody minutes? Like, for God's sake. Um, uh, 
so I had a I had a pretty safe seat. So. Um, <laughs> got to remind people it's it's a, a tremendous privilege uh, to get to select who governs you around the world millions and millions and millions of people do not and do fight and die yeah. to be in the position we are uh, who governs matters yes, exactly. uh, and it matters practically it matters for opportunity um, you know one thing from my own life story I mean I went to university because Gough Whitlam a Labor Prime Minister abolished fees if he been there, then I probably wouldn't have got to go. And what would my life story have been? Well, who knows, but it wouldn't have been the same life story. Uh, so, you know, governments make a difference that impact mm. people's lives, and that's worth getting involved in. And I think that sense of, uh, yeah, to get that sense to young people about how important this contest is, uh, because, you know, we'll all be long gone uh, when you're still uh, dealing with the consequences of policies that are adopted today. So um, it's so important that we have that dialogue with young people, and you, uh, and young people like you, are particularly well placed to do it. So, once again, congratulations. To you. That's fantastic. Well, well done, done, Alex. Can I just take a straw poll of the young men and women, decide yourselves whether you are, um, <laughs> in the audience who are, would seriously consider a career in politics? That's quite a few. It's good. Well, I would say that's not bad, given that this is LSE. Um, <laughs> but I think I, I, I thought what Julia said was, uh, was really interesting. And it is something I think that we all, those of us who are um, in politics, who have held um, senior positions, think about. And I think there are two other things I would add to that. One is always have your gang always be part of, um, of a team. And then when you've done it for a while, just remember that what you learn um, is of enormous benefit to the young women um, or the young men who um, are just thinking of starting out. And I think the third thing is a kind of optimism about human nature, because so often the position of women in politics gets written as um, a story of victimhood. And women in politics are not victims. They are people of passion who, as Julia has just, I think, so well put, you know, believe in the power of decent politics to bring about change. But I think it's very tough if you do it all on your own. So you want to build, and I know, Alex, you did this with your, um, your team in your, in your campaign. You want to build um, the... Uh you want to build the team um, and have that just wonderful sense of common purpose and shared ambition. Okay, so... We've got another great Twitter question. We've got another, tw oh, we've got another great There's Twitter several. question. There's a really good one here. Shall I just right, ask you? Right, so this is... Okay, so it's from it. um, Greg Campbell, who's tweeted, Britain got their first female Prime Minister in 1979 and haven't since. Why do you think this is, and will the same happen in Australia? Oh. Uh, um, uh, I, I hope uh, we course. see uh, you know, uh, men and women uh, routinely in leadership positions far more quickly yes. here and uh, in Australia, around the world. Um, look, it's, 
Um, it, it's hard to, uh, to so I'll put it another way. One of the things that happens when we talk about uh, women in politics is it often uh, ends up being a discussion around one woman or yes. a few women yeah, and exactly. are they going to make it? And obviously with the Labor leadership ballot here, there'll be some of that kind of dialogue. Yep. Um, but what really matters to have women come through is that you've got a big, hopefully equal class of women coming into the parliament. Uh, because politics, uh, you know, to get to the top in politics, you need to have uh, skills and abilities. But there's also some things about luck and timing that matter. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, when you look at across Australian uh, politics, there was a period, uh, in, particularly in the 50s and 60s, a very long-term conservative government. Uh, and the reality is you could have been the most talented Labor member uh, ever born, ever known, uh, and you would have sat on the opposition benches for all of your political right. careers. So there are some things about luck and timing that matter in politics too. And so this can't be a debate about, you know, who are the next, you know, who's the next most likely one woman or two women. It's got to be about how do we bring in a yep. large number of women yep. into politics so that in the ebb and flow of politics they can come through into the Cabinet, the ebb and flow of politics, you know, they can present for leadership. Um, I used to say, even when I was Prime Minister, that really uh, part of knowing uh, that we've got to an equal era yep. is, you know, people will always theorise, no matter who is at the top of politics, people will theorise, you know, who, who is likely to, you know, be the next generation of yep. leaders whenever this leader chooses to go or is defeated or whatever happens, yep. um, you know. And, and if you did that in Australian politics, frequently people would name three or four men. Yep. Um, yeah. Now, we'll be in an era of equal opportunity where on both sides of politics people say, well, you know, the, the next likely contending class for leader is a few men and a few women. And, you know, that's when you'll get the sustained change that means it's not one, one woman off. and then a long period of time and yep. another woman. Yeah. Good. Yes. Um, Gentleman at the back. And can we just look at the balcony? Yes, right. OK, you're next. Hi, Julia. Um, my name is Fionn Magari. I'm a student at Trinity College Dublin studying history and political science. Um, so I grew up as a gay person in Australia um, and found that very difficult, that in spite of my excellent parents and, and all that. Um, while I was canvassing for a yes vote in the referendum in Ireland um, last month, I felt that Ireland was very supportive of gay people and I felt that was a really like, nice experience. Um, but I wouldn't wish a referendum on anyone. It was a really, really difficult time for gay people um, having you know, your rights debated in, in public in that way. Mm. Um, however, I really, really appreciate what you and Kevin did in, in government in terms of um, change, like law reform and that sort of thing. Um, and also just having an open-minded attitude um, to difference, which I think is really, really important. Um, your opposition to same-sex marriage while in government, as you articulated it, reads a, as a really com completely legitimate criticism of marriage as, as it has existed like over centuries as a patriarchal kind of institution. What I'm kind of wondering is that now that there is seemingly a tide in favour of same-sex marriage across Western liberal democracies, do you think that there is a role perhaps in... Uh, for, for same-sex marriage and degendering marriage and perhaps in furthering the cause of gender equality? Um, well, that, that's really... 
the, the referendum in Ireland was obviously uh, much noted in Australia and around the world, so it's actually very interesting to hear... And a cause of joy, I'd say. <laughs> uh, really interesting to hear your reflection on uh, what it was like to have that as the decision-making structure for change. That's, um, I haven't heard anybody say that before, so uh, that's something to think about. Uh, look, I think that there is a you know, global uh, movement for change here, and uh, yes, uh, I've got uh, attitudes uh, you know, forged in uh, 1970s and uh, early 1980s feminism about uh, marriage, and I've spoken about those publicly. I mean, if anybody had uh, said to me, I mean, I'm not married now, um, but if anybody had said to me, uh, you know, back in my university days, you know, uh, you know, something to do with your life is to walk down an aisle in a white dress given away by your father to another man, I would have said, yeah, let's try and have this conversation uh, about uh, what's wrong with that picture. So, yeah, I formed my views about some of these questions back then. Uh, but clearly, you know, this, there is a global tide for change. Um, in, in Australia, um, what will facilitate change won't be a referendum, uh, but it will be a conscience vote on all sides of politics. And so I think that's the, the next you know, natural piece to focus on. When I was Labor leader, uh, we made sure that the Labor Party had a conscience vote. Uh, now there is calls from sections of the Liberal Party, our Conservative Party. Uh, I know it confuses people for the Conservative Party to be the Liberal Party, which is why I've always got to clarify. But um, uh, now there are calls for the Liberal Party, uh, from sections of it, to have a conscience vote. And it's really only when those calls are acceded to uh, that you could see that there's a prospect for change in Australia. And what I think would certainly... Um, want to be something that's avoided is that it ends up a, a partisan issue uh, where you know one side of politics has a conscience vote disproportionately says yes and the other side of politics block votes and says no. I think if that continues to be the political cycle that's a really negative one for any fair discussion. I think people will find it harder to work through the issues in that environment. Um, so, you know, I'd be moderately optimistic that over the medium term there will be that change in a conscience vote in the Liberal Party in Australia, but um, it's certainly, you know, it's not there yet. It's not there yet. OK, Julia. Now, yes, uh, in the balcony, young woman, uh, can you just wait? Can I just check who else wants to ask a question? OK. What we may do, because we have to finish in about five minutes is to take a, a number of questions together. Julia, if that's okay. Yes. Hi, my name's Tina. I'm from Belfast, and I'm um, with a group called 5050 Parliament Campaign. There's an online petition, if you can all go and sign it, please. Uh, basically, um, a three-part question. Um, given how few women vote here in the UK, um, do you think that, uh, and maybe through you not feeling um, represented in government and that their issues are not taken seriously, um, do you think that a 50-50 Parliament would make a difference to women voting if they could see people like themselves um, actually there as politicians. Um, also, do you think gender equality is a human right? Um, and how can we get... One more question. Yeah. <laughs> and how can we get, get closer to 50-50 in Parliament? Okay, thanks very much. Um, let's, yes, you wanted to ask a question. Yeah, Maria, Abby, the mic coming, Maria. 
Maria, just uh, there, there's a microphone. Yeah, I'm Maria Ali from the Maldives. Um, I used to be um, in politics, um, and um, um, I fight for women's rights and children's rights. And um, your talk has just inspired me not to give up. Just hey. wanted to say that Thank it's you. it's been very inspiring. Thank you. Oh, Wonderful, Thank you. Maria. Thanks. Thank you. Um, anybody uh, else? Yes, this is going to be our last question. Thank you. Thanks, Julia. My name is Bethany. I'm from Melbourne. I'm in your electorate. Um, and I'm a student here at LSE studying anthropology. Um, you opened your speech with a story about your parents and how your parents always encouraged you to think of yourself as good as a man or as good as a boy. And I'm wondering if we could look at that from the other side as well and to think about what particular strengths women have, particularly in politics, yeah, that men could then aim to emulate. And I'm saying this in particular because I know of your strengths as a negotiator, particularly in the international Very field. Very good. Okay. Very good. Better politics with more women. Very good question. So that, that's our last round of questions. So, Julia, um, would you... I mean, Maria's was a very generous tribute, and what an optimistic way for us to finish, Maria. Um, but would you like to, um, first of all, answer the question about quotas and 50, sure. getting to 50-50? Uh, sure. Look, how... Right. I'm so sorry. I misheard. Getting to 50-50. And the difference it would make. Yes. Uh, the difference it would make, I think, is, you know, merit equally distributed, parliament, you know, half men, half women. It does mean that you haven't held women of merit back artificially from participating in the parliament, that the structural barriers uh, and discriminations that can hold women back have been eradicated. That would be a good thing. You know, how political parties, parliaments, nations get themselves there. I think that there's a variety of ways of doing that. You know, we did it but through an affirmative action rule uh, and Labor women's support networks, of which Emily's list was one, but it's not the only one. Uh, so there are various sort of paths here. Uh, but really, uh, from the questions, uh, what, what I think it means is, you know, don't, don't give up until we get there, uh, that the force for change, the pressure for change, the voices for change do make a difference. And one thing I'm really certain of is in Australian politics, for the Australian Labor Party, if we had not succeeded in that affirmative action rule, you would not see the number of women in Australian Labor caucuses today that you do. We would be in a different place. Uh, so the, the campaigning for change does make a difference. This, you know, at an earlier point in my life, as I said a bit earlier on, you know, I thought all of this would be self-correcting, that it would kind of fix itself. Yeah. It's not going to yeah. fix itself. You know, we've got to have the structures and policies and plans that fix it. Okay, thanks. Yes, and um, and yeah, so, someone from my former former electorate. That's fantastic. Special discrimination in favour. Um, <laughs> uh, a great a, a great electorate. Um, I, mean, I probably have, I suspect I've got a slightly different take on this than you, though. Um, I am not a believer that there's a, a particularly male leadership style and a particularly female leadership style. I think mm. men and women uh, can uh, be leaders in different ways. Uh, what 
What I do think, though, is if we say historically a sort of command and control leadership style has been associated with men, whether or not that's right, and historically uh, a more collaborative way of working has been associated with women, whether or not that's right, um, in, in democracies today they don't uh, give themselves easily over to command and control. Uh, people are too empowered. People want to be collaborators in change. They want to um, you know, have their voices heard. They want to understand the arguments. Uh, people's perceptions of hierarchy are different today. Um, you know, I, I remember my uh, parents, you know, when I was growing up, uh, if they were going to go and see the bank manager, uh, you know, dad, dad would get a suit on. You know, this was a big thing, go and see the bank manager. Uh, you had to go to school for parent-teacher night, you'd wear a suit. I mean, go and mm. see the school teacher, uh, let, let, let alone go and see a member of parliament. I mean, heavens, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd have to practice and prepare what you were going to say for days. I mean, there's this uh, was a real sense of hierarchy, and if, if one of those people, a bank manager, or the school teacher or a parliamentarian had given an instruction to my mother and father, they would have been very likely to follow it because they'd have a sense that, you know, there are these power structures. Uh, today, particularly in Australian politics, particularly in my own electorate, uh, you'd, you'd get, a, get an eight-year-old run up and say, you know, Julia, 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 I think you should do this as Prime Minister. Thanks, buddy, for the advice. Um, uh, you know, I'd, one, of, one of the things that always amazed me uh, in politics, I used to joke about this, if you wandered round and said, I'm a brain surgeon, people would go, oh... Gee, I reckon that'd be a pretty complicated job. I don't know how you do that. Oh, that must be amazingly hard. Gee, you must have studied a long time. Uh, whereas if you wander around saying, you know, I'm a parliamentarian, people say, you know what you should do next? So in this age where everybody is a questing and empowered actor, uh, I think uh, those <laughs> skills of collaboration and negotiation and bringing people together are yeah. more the skills that work in a democracy yeah, exactly. than the old command and control skills. Yeah. I don't know if they're inherently female skills, uh, but I believe they're important skills. Julia, thank you. I think that uh, is absolutely great, and I agree. I'm going to let Perna just uh, finish us, close uh, the session, but can I just um, thank all of you for your fantastic questions and, uh, and for coming. And can... We all thank you, Julia, for challenging us and inspiring us, telling us your story in a way that fills a lot of the gaps, I think, that even those of us who are close watchers perhaps didn't um, realise. And I think it's very hard to believe that Julia Gillard is over as a public figure in her country. So let's hope not. Mm. I'm sure not. Um, but thank you so much for sharing so much with us this evening. And Perna, you yes. uh, just bring this to a close. Yes. All I wanted to do is again to thank Julia for making time for us here in this project, which has been Really, really incredible to have your, your undivided attention, as you say, to answer a million questions that I've thrown at you, I'm afraid. Um, so thank you for that and for sharing your time with us tonight. I also want to thank you, Tessa, for, gotcha. for chairing us through the event this evening. I know you're also very busy 
hard at work campaigning. Um, so it's great to have you here. I'd also like to acknowledge several people in the room who have been generous with their time and given us interviews which have really enriched the project as we've gone forward. I won't point anybody out because they, they'll want to declare themselves or not. But I do want to acknowledge also people on the advisory group who have helped steer the project forward as we've gone along. So thank you to all of you and to everybody who's come tonight. Thank you very much. Thank you.